0: This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner, American Underdog, rated PG, parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day.
1: This is Janet Mefford Today. Our
0: confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God, come
1: what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it!
0: And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for being with us again. Back in 2017, President Trump did an amazing thing when he formally recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and ordered the State Department to move our embassy there from Tel Aviv. But as we all know, Jerusalem is not just significant in the political sense, it is actually the most mentioned city in all of Scripture. It appears in the pages of the Bible more than 800 times. And in fact, as my next guest points out, Jerusalem is at the heart of Messianic prophecy and redemptive history. History. It was the site of the temple, it is where the church began, it is where Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, and it is where he will return. As Zechariah 14 tells us, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. But do we really understand the importance of Jerusalem in Bible prophecy? And what do we need to understand about its glorious future? For that, we're going to talk with Dr. Randall Price. He serves as Distinguished Research Professor of Biblical and Judaic Studies at Liberty University and as President of World of the Bible Ministry where he connects a global audience with biblical truths concerning the land of Israel. He also serves on the board of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And today we will be talking about the revised edition of his book, Jerusalem and Prophecy, God's Stage for the Final Drama. Dr. Price, it's great to have you here. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine, Janet. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you. As you say in your book, Jerusalem has been something of a second home to you over the years. You've done a lot of work there and worked as an archaeologist, lived there as a student. Why do you think Christians need to pay special attention to Jerusalem, maybe especially in these days, especially right now?
1: Well, the whole, the whole future of God is a program for the planet Earth, as well as the uh, human race, finds its uh, center stage in Jerusalem. And I think if we didn't have, of course, the COVID binders on that only help us think beyond the next day, we're, we're, we don't see uh, all that's happening around us because we're so uh, caught up in world affairs uh, related to this one virus. Yes. But if we simply uh, remove that for a moment, we'll see that God is still working to bring about all of His promised plan in one place. and That place uh, has attackers today. We've got uh, very much people... Uh, four meaning different types of designs on that city which were expressly mentioned in Scripture, and we have a new administration making plans to unver- reverse what was done in the previous administration, which will greatly affect uh, not only the future of that city, but even catapult us, I think, further into some of the things God has designed uh, to bring about the end of days. So mm-hmm. it's a very important uh, focus for us
0: well it is and you're absolutely right about that and it you know it's it's strange to go from one administration where there's such a love for Israel and trying to do policies that will help Israel and now of course we have an administration that has a completely different view when you're looking though at the subject of Bible prophecy uh, people seem to be having more and more of an interest in that right now which can be a very good thing why is it so important for us to focus on Bible prophecy in these days I think covid as you mentioned has gotten a lot of people a lot of Christians in particular thinking about this?
1: Well, I think we need a sure word. The the problem is we hear so much information. Some on one side will call it information, some will call it misinformation. You don't know what you're hearing. (laughs) We need something that is time-tested and we know is absolute truth, and that's what Scripture is. And God, unlike all the other religions that make claims in this world— did not leave us without the evidence of the proof of the truthfulness of his word, because he gave us prophecy. And, and that tells us what is about to come. And so when you have your mind settled on the details of prophecy, have a, a good outline of what the future will be, it allows you, I think, to have more confidence in each day. You don't worry so much about what's going to happen, you know what is determined to happen and you know who's in control. Mm-hmm. And as many people have said, you know, the last chapter says we win, and so for that reason, We have the the advantage of saying, I don't have to have fear uh, and uncertainty in these very uncertain times.
0: Right. Absolutely right. Well, we have a problem, though, in the modern church, and you talk some about this in your book, of the rise of replacement theology, as many people refer to it. There are a number of Christians who seem to believe nowadays that God doesn't have any future plans for Israel. That was the Old Testament. Now the church replaces Israel. How do you respond to that and why that is... Absolutely, an unbiblical thing to say when you actually read the text of Scripture.
1: Yeah, if we if we simply take, first of all, the Old Testament as it was given, realizing that both the audience of the Old Testament and the New Testament were not trained scholars, they were average people, and the word that was given to them was to be read quite literally and believed quite literally. Uh, we don't have then the the I would say the luxury of saying that these people had some deeper, hidden meaning that uh, you could replace one idea for. In other words, the Old Testament was a failed experiment, and the New Testament now takes over all of the dominant themes of the Old Testament and recasts them in a a totally spiritual light. Uh, It it makes no sense, then. All the people who God spoke to and gave promises to never will realize those promises as they were given. Uh, You can't say, then, that God made a covenant And he calls it an unconditional covenant, one that will be fulfilled exactly as he gave it. And I often think in terms of those who understand contract law. When a lawyer makes a contract and draws it up, the two two parties involved uh, have to unambiguously understand what the other has expressed, in in terms of conditions and promises. So if God stated to Abraham at the beginning that through him, uh, his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed, and that was to be through the Jewish people and through the Jewish Messiah, and then all that changes and we have a totally different plan unfolding, uh, what are we to make of God? He's either intentionally deceiving Abraham or Abraham... Uh, is believing a lie, and it, there's, there's too many things wrong with that. But when we understand the plain words of Scripture, understanding that certainly figurative language is used, and it's quite easy to see when that's used, uh, that God intended a, a program beginning from the beginning of time uh, to lay out the Messiah who would literally be born and would literally die and rise again, and then would literally return to set up a kingdom, an earthly kingdom, and all the... The New Testament reinforces that when it says that, you know, the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of our God, and that is Christ. He will reign forever and ever, or that we'll be priests of God and reign with him for a thousand years. It tells us that we will reign upon the earth. All these terms used in the book of Revelation refer not to some other place, but this place. And so we see that there has to be fulfillment that is consistent with the way it was given. Uh replacement theology changes those terms and turns around and says that, no, the people with whom the covenant was made are not the people with whom it will be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And the terms of the covenant are quite different as well. It were never meant to be fulfilled on earth and in an earthly way, but to be fulfilled in a heavenly way. And this kind of thing, as I said, is not on the pages of the scriptures, but it did enter into the church around the 4th century, uh, with people who picked up platonic thinking and came through philo of alexandria and origin and many others who who took a more spiritualizing uh focus on scripture right. and uh, as there's and many times in a, in a semitic way uh, reacting to the promises that that the jews took quite literally and that changed the face of things for many people you've had rival Uh, views ever since.
0: Well, you're right about that. And so then you end up with conferences like Christ at the Checkpoint, where you have even American evangelicals traveling over there to try to really undermine Israel. It's just, it's befuddling, but at the same time, maybe it fits with the times. And that's all the more reason to stress Bible prophecy, is it not?
1: It is, because if we come to those last times, we see uh, persecuted Israel, we see a deceived world, we see it on a global stage, Uh, we see enemies massing to attack Israel, and that with a satanic agenda. So all of these things uh, are very much and very believable today, as, as we see, you know, the signs of the times.
0: So true. Well, there are so many different prophecies about Jerusalem. Obviously, in the Bible, you can look at prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and go through some of those in Daniel as well, because Jerusalem has a very significant future, a glorious future. In fact, we're going to come back with Dr. Randall Price. Jerusalem and Prophecy is his book. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bible-less believers around the world for only five years or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100 Call 800-YESWORD, that's 800 Word. or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people
1: being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life.
0: That's 800-YESWORD or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Every day, babies in their mother's wombs are fighting for life, with abortion being the leading cause of death. I already had my mind made up. I was like, I'm going to go through with it. The Ministry of Preborn has pregnancy centers nationwide standing by to help young moms in crisis choose life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound sessions in the country. By letting a mother see her baby in the womb and hear the baby's heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby.
1: When I'm sitting there, the lady is giving me my
0: ultrasound. She's like making these Weird faces. She's like, it's two. I just start crying. I can't. And sometimes the blessing is doubled. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of the year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now through a match, your gift will be doubled. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com.
1: You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet.
0: Psalm 87.2 says... The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. And certainly Jerusalem is the central city mentioned in the Bible so many times. So many prophecies about Jerusalem are evident in the Old Testament. We're talking about the book Jerusalem and Prophecy written by my guest, Dr. Randall Price, Distinguished Research Professor of Biblical and Judaic Studies at Liberty University. Dr. Price, let's talk a little bit about some of the prophecy concerning Jerusalem. Now, you had mentioned, I think this is significant for people to understand, Jerusalem has this position in two different prophetic periods. You have the times of the Gentiles that were mentioned in Luke 21, and also the 70 weeks of Daniel that are mentioned in chapter 9 of that book. Can you tell people a little bit about the difference there between the times of the Gentiles versus what is to come when, in fact, the, the 70th week is upon us?
1: Yeah. Let me preface it just a minute with Ezekiel 5.5, 5, because there God says, I have set Jerusalem in the midst with the nations round about her. And the purpose for that is that Jerusalem was to be in a place, a pivotal place, to bring light to the nations. But if it failed in that, then God would bring the nations, in a in a sense, to put out its lights. And so we have this picture of Jerusalem uh, strategically in the plan of God to be the place where the final fulfillment happens, where all the, the new covenant finds its fulfillment and Israel is restored. But we also see it as a place where uh, Israel will be disciplined, and Jerusalem is the focal point of that, because that's where God's presence was. Right. So we come to the times of the Gentiles, uh, there was a great statue you see in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, and uh, the, the, the picture there is of successive nations, uh, the Gentile nations. Started in 586-587 BC, when God had the Babylonians take Jerusalem and exile its people. And it said this will continue for a period of time, and the period of time, 77s was the idea, because there were weeks of years based on the sabbatical years that had been neglected by Israel. Those had to be made up, so it was a period of 490 years. And the, the times of the Gentiles is the time in which the Gentiles exercised dominion over Israel. So they're not the head, they're the tail. They're not in control, they're in submission. And that's part of God's discipline. Luke chapter uh, 21 and verse 24 says, uh, talks about that Jerusalem be trampled underfoot by the nations until the times of the Gentiles be concluded or fulfilled. And so that's still uh, connected with Daniel's 70 weeks. There's another time Daniel mentions in Daniel chapter 8 called uh, the time of Israel's distress or indignation. And indignation is the idea that God is... Particularly, judging Israel, uh, so one looks at the nations uh, as the agent of the discipline. The other looks at the nature of Israel's discipline in God's own plan, mm-hmm. so that they uh, shows His wrath toward His people, but for the purpose ultimately of doing good in the end and restoring it. So, what happens is we have, according to Daniel nine, a period of four hundred eighty three years, which passes from the time that we have the decree issued to store and rebuild Jerusalem until the time when Messiah is cut off. And then it tells us his remaining week of seven years, that's the time we understand to be the future tribulation period. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's defined that way in all of the discourse in Matthew and in the book of Revelation. It's 1,260 days, uh, or 42 weeks, something like this. Uh, That term is used over and over again because I think the book of Revelation and the olive discourse were patterned after this 70th week of Daniel. So that's how we can explain what they're saying. And all of this concludes at the end of the 70th week, which is the end of the tribulation, climax by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he comes to rescue Jerusalem, which is under siege. Zechariah chapter fourteen, verses one and two, Zechariah chapter twelve, verses one through three Uh, All of these refer to that, and Zechariah 14.3 says that that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is on the east of Jerusalem, and then a great earthquake will happen, and there will be deliverance of the Jewish people into persecution by the nations. So all this is part of that uh, great time of the Gentiles, which will have its uh, final point. And in Daniel 2 tells us that when the times of the Gentiles are ended, there'll be one kingdom that will supplant all the previous kingdoms and it will remain forever, and that's the kingdom of the Messiah. Yes,
0: it's going to be incredible. And Isaiah, too, right, yes. it talks about Jerusalem and the millennial kingdom, and how, what's ahead for Jerusalem there, and, and right. the land of Israel.
1: Right, yeah. I, Isaiah chapter 2, which is parallel in Micah chapter 4, says that in that day that The house of the Lord will be raised above all the other hills and all the nations will stream to it. Mm -hmm. And it says in that day the law will go forth from Jerusalem and the word of the Lord from Zion and all again the nations will come to learn it. And so it's the type of thing, it's a reversal of what we've seen in the past. In the past the nations came to Jerusalem for war, in the future they'll come for worship. Mm -hmm. And this is that great final climax. But Jerusalem's at the center, it'll be the throne of the Lord in that day. And it'll be recognized, throughout uh, the whole world, as the place where Messiah resides and where his word goes forth. And so that changes everything. It says the word of the Lord will, be, will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Amazing. And the new covenant infected that day says no one will have to ever tell their neighbor, know the Lord. They'll all know me mm-hmm. from the greatest to the least.
0: Well, that That's just incredible to consider. That's really going to happen. It's going to be an amazing thing, but also very, very disturbing when, when people are looking at the signs of the times, and obviously we don't know for sure how things will play out between now and then time-wise, but when you're looking at the timeline of current events and you see things like, you know, there there are discussions about those who want to reinstate the priesthood and those who want to rebuild the temple there, and we know that that's a very important sign in the at the end of the age. What do you see on the timeline in terms of how close we might be to the return of Christ and the rapture of the church and then the beginning of the tribulation?
1: I, I think, you know, people often say, well, I heard about Christ all my life from the time I was young and nothing's happened. And I say, well, you're looking at the great big event, but look at the small details that lead up to that, the signs which are absolutely essential to bring that to pass. Most of those are signs related to the tribulation period and the second coming of Christ, but that doesn't happen overnight. It takes years, sometimes decades, maybe even centuries, to bring some of those things to pass. So you know, we had to see Israel come into the land. We had to see them have independence. We had to see them control certain parts of the land, as Ezekiel 39 said, would have to be occupied and inhabited at that time. We have to see Israel in a state of independence. We have to see a a growing and rising assault by all the nations of the world against Jerusalem as they become, you know, this, this controversial place. So all these things had to happen. But you look at other details, uh, the ideas of the Gog and Magog War, things related to uh, this rebuilding of the Temple. Yes. Uh, these have only happened in the last few decades, and if you look at those, we are getting closer and closer and closer. In other words, I think the signs are multiplying as we move that direction. So we can't know when on the timeline that happens, but we know if these things are to be be set, set in place for events that will happen after the Rapture then ultimately we must be getting closer to that that hour. And uh, that's the best we can do rather rather than try to you know, look for some specific time, just be ready all the time.
0: You have to be, because the return of the Lord is imminent. I mean, that that's the thing that really needs to be stressed, I think, restressed to every Christian, is the Lord could return for his church at any time. There aren't any signs that we have to go through, 17 signs before Jesus will come back for us. It could happen at any moment, and that's why the Lord told us to be ready.
1: Yes. Well, the rapture is a signless event. So, it could have happened any time in the history of the church yeah. Yeah. however the events of the tribulation have certain signs connected with them now one could believe the rapture would happen and then it might be centuries before the tribulation would begin although it looks as though these events come fairly quickly afterward well now as we are come in closer to the to see many of these events put in place and that's why in my book i entitled "God's stage for the final drama because The stage is being set today. The actors are all in place, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And all we need is for the curtain to go up, for the the, the play to continue. So we're at that stage of history, and if you have eyes to see and you understand the prophecies of the word, uh, you're much more secure against all of the concerns of the day.
0: Well, that's right. And and you think of Revelation where there's a, many references, uh, obviously, in Scripture, Revelation 21, Revelation 3, to the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. Uh, Jesus make this, makes this reference when he's speaking to the church at Philadelphia. John writes in Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. What is the significance of using that terminology, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven?
1: Well, first, the New Jerusalem has always existed. It was called the heavenly Jerusalem in the Old Testament, certainly in Jewish writings, but it was the place where God has his heavenly dwelling, where his His heavenly temple exists. And what is going to happen is that heaven's going to come down to earth. God made this world as a place for him to rule, and that will happen. Uh, That was lost, and when the paradise, we might say, in the garden was corrupted, the paradise will be restored, and heaven will come down to earth, and his dwelling will be among men. It says he will be their God, and will be his people. He will dwell among them, which is a phenomenal thing that's never happened. He came in a, uh, a temporary form. when He came to the temple and the tabernacle in the past, but now he's coming to live amongst us and to be our king. And, of course, he has a body now. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this would be the Lord ruling, the resurrected Christ, glorified Christ, ruling from a glorified city, uh, over glorified people, I might say, particularly in the New Jerusalem. So this is the, the apex of all of God's revealed plan. It certainly is the final consummation of what he started way back when he created this world, created mankind, to be in a relationship with him.
0: Very good. Well, it's a wonderful book, highly recommended, Jerusalem and Prophecy by Dr. Randall Price. And thank you so much, Dr. Price. It was wonderful to have you here. God bless you.
1: You too. My pleasure.
0: Thank you very much. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner, American Underdog, rated PG, parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day.
1: This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: This hour of Janet Meffert today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner, American Underdog, rated PG, parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day. While this is a bit of good news, I think no matter where you fall on the vaccine or no vaccine scale, you're going to enjoy this news. Pfizer says its COVID-19 pill is nearly 90% effective against hospitalization and death. Well, this might be a game changer. This is via Reuters. Pfizer Tuesday said its antiviral COVID-19 pills showed near 90% efficacy in preventing hospitalizations and deaths in high-risk patients. And recent lab data suggests the drug retains its effectiveness against the fast-spreading Omicron variant of the coronavirus. You mean the Omicron variant that hasn't killed anybody and is extremely mild? That deadly virus. But, you know, hey, any kind of development of a drug that will treat COVID-19 is good since they kick to the curb hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and all of the other things that have been effective for people in treating COVID-19. And you're not allowed to say that on Twitter or they will censor you. This is very interesting. The Pfizer pills are taken with the older antiviral ritonavir every 12 hours for five days beginning shortly after onset of symptoms. And if authorized, the treatment will be sold as Paxlovid. A stunning outcome, according to Visor Chief Scientific Officer Mikhail Dolston in an interview. We're talking about a staggering number of lives saved and hospitalizations prevented. And of course, if you deploy this quickly after infection, we are likely to reduce transmission dramatically. Now, what I find so fascinating about this is even as this news is coming out, you have more draconian action regarding marginalization, demonization and punishment of the unvaccinated. Okay, there's so much to get through. Let's start with this. Kroger. For a lot of you who listen, you'll know Kroger in other areas of the country. They own other grocery stores, but Kroger is very big here in Texas where I am. They're ending benefits, some benefits for unvaccinated workers. Unvaccinated workers, according to AP at Kroger, will no longer be eligible to receive up to two weeks paid emergency leave if they become infected. That policy was put into place last year when the vaccines were unavailable. They also confirmed changes in benefits that were first reported by The Wall Street Journal for non-union or management. Unvaccinated workers in that category will pay a monthly $50 surcharge for their company health plan. What are you basing this on? Well, the Wall Street Journal said that the leave and health insurance surcharge policies are effective in the new year. It will only apply to unvaccinated salaried employees that are enrolled in a company health care plan. It will not apply to hourly associates enrolled in a company health care plan or those covered by a collective bargaining agreement. Gee, that sounds awfully unfair. If the unvaccinated are such an enormous threat and such an enormous drain on resources such that you have to punish them for not getting vaccines that have injured and killed people, but we're not allowed to talk about that. Why aren't you doing it across the board? You're only doing it to salaried employees. You're not going to do it to hourly employees. Is that possibly because you're having difficulty filling some of your positions? Uh, I don't even remember the last time that I had somebody actually bagging my groceries at Kroger because they can't find people to stay in those jobs. So they don't want to drive away the hourly employees who might come in and say, yeah, I'll take a job at Kroger and I'll be a you know, what? I'll be a cashier or I'll be a bagger or what have you. Those hourly employees are not as valuable, apparently, as salaried employees. No, wait a minute. They are because they don't have to pay a surcharge. Now, they may be saying that, well, they receive a lot less money. Yeah, but if they're on the company health care plan, why don't you just apply it evenly to all your employees? You see the scam of it? It's kind of like Gavin Newsom back in the day, early 2020, going, oh, yeah, the liquor stores and the abortion clinics, you guys can stay open because you guys are essential businesses. But you churches better close down because you guys are super spreaders. He didn't really say that. But the media acted like that, as you know, for months on end. Churches are terrible, super spreaders. It was never true, by the way. It was never true. And, and they never talked about BLM rallies in the streets of our major cities being super spreaders. That was never. See, we're on to this whole hoax. A lot of us have been on to the whole hoax for a long time. You do have you have all sorts of double standards applied. You have all kinds of hypocrisy involved. You just go on Twitter any day of the week and you can find some leftist draconian tyrant who's been screaming and yelling about kids having to wear masks and these people having to be vaccinated, carousing behind the scenes at some high level country club with his buddies unmasked and unsocially distanced. These people don't believe a word they're saying. They just love having their jackboots kicking you at all times. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Now with Kroger, we also have another story along the same lines the U.S. Air Force. The U.S. Air Force has discharged 27 people for refusing to get the COVID-19 vaccine, making them what officials believe are the first service members to be removed for disobeying the mandate to get the shots. You mean the mandate that has gone down in flames at every single court where it's been openly challenged? Yeah, that one? Because it's unconstitutional? Doesn't matter. This is from AP. The Air Force gave its forces until November 2nd to get the vaccine. Thousands have either refused to do it or sought an exemption. And an Air Force spokeswoman said, these are the first airmen to be administratively discharged for reasons involving the vaccine. Uh, I'm going to get into a little bit more on why this is now ridiculous. It was ridiculous from the outset, but it's even more ridiculous the more that we get information showing it's ridiculous. Here's one. This is from Conservative Review. Hospitals are thinking "Mm, maybe this whole thing that we did firing unvaccinated staffers wasn't such a great idea after all. Have you seen this now that the Biden unconstitutional mandates that have been pushed by OSHA, which has no legal right to do what it's doing with, you know, employing these vaccine mandates against companies? They now have this story out about companies like HCA Healthcare, Tenet Healthcare Corporation, Advent Health, and the Cleveland Clinic. They're now dropping their jab requirements in light of all of these legal victories for the people who are against the vaccine mandates. All of this has exacerbated the hospital's cost of labor problems and caused all kinds of issues with staff retention. Again, back to the Wall Street Journal. They talked to employee benefits lawyer Wade Simons, who noted the mass exodus debacle and said facilities that don't have the vaccine requirements could be a magnet for health professionals looking to practice health care away from mandates. You think? Alan Levine, who's CEO of Ballot Health which has 21 hospitals in Tennessee and Virginia and about 14,000 employees, said the federal court did everybody a favor by stopping the mandate. His company had 2,000 folks unvaccinated and he said that canning that many people would have been devastating to our system, not to mention unnecessary. How many healthcare workers were cheered and cheered and, and just praised to the heavens for showing up rightly for showing up during the course of the pandemic before there ever was a vaccine and treating people the way that healthcare professionals should do. this we, we all were extremely grateful for these people who were willing to catch COVID-19 in order to treat their patients. And those people are awesome. I think it's terrific that there are people who will be willing to potentially sacrifice their lives in order to treat extremely sick people. Now you're going to turn around and punish those people. Maybe those people have... People they know who have been injured or who have even died after taking the vaccine. I'm in that category. I don't know anybody who has died. I don't know anybody who has personally died who I know in my circle of friends, family, or associates who has died because of COVID 19. Nobody I know well, nobody in my close circle. But I now know people who've been injured and I know at least one person who has died because of the vaccine. So, Yeah, we're not allowed to think. We just have to obey. That's all it is. Uh, And remember, back in November, it was reported that Delta said that unvaccinated workers would have to pay an extra $200 a month for their health insurance. This began at the beginning of November, and it was a little less onerous than the vaccine mandate imposed on workers by United Airlines. Around 75 percent of Delta's workforce uh, already received the COVID shots by that time. But each employee who was hospitalized with COVID had cost Delta 50 grand and none of those hospitalized in the summer surge had been fully vaccinated. So they said the surcharge would be necessary to address the financial risk the decision to not vaccinate is creating for our company. Well, what about the fact that if you have now a Pfizer COVID-19 pill that is extremely effective, why do people have to get vaccines anymore? Just wondering And more than that, I'm going to get into this when we get back from the break. Even the Atlantic is now saying the pandemic of the vaccinated is here. We'll tell you more when we come back. Stay with us on Janet Meffer Today.
1: From Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine comes American Underdog. Undrafted out of college, quarterback Kurt Warner found himself stocking grocery shelves while trying to hold on to his dream to play in the NFL. I have been working for this my entire life. God is going to do something great with you. Based on the true story, American Underdog. Rated PG. pedal guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day. More information is available at AmericanUnderdogInspires.com. If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at MercyShips.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime.
0: This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent his son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bible-less believers around the world for only four $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800 YESWORD. That's 800 Yes Word, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture
1: for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life.
0: That's 800 YESWORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com.
1: You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet.
0: Another interesting point in all of this is David Frum, the writer over at The Atlantic, calling for hospitals to quietly serve the unvaccinated last. What happened to health care is a right? Aren't these the same people who have been screaming and yelling all the way back to the days of Obamacare being instituted unconstitutionally, I might add? Oh, health is a right. Health is a Right. While this is what David Frum put out on Twitter, seems the best option is keep encouraging vaccines and boosters, impose vaccine mandates where it can be done, otherwise return to normal as fully as we can, especially the schools. And finally, he said, let hospitals quietly triage emergency care to serve the unvaccinated last. Excuse me, um, horrendously unethical. Even the AMA has said as much. But even funnier is this story now in the Atlantic called the pandemic of the vaccinated is here. <laughs> no kidding. You can't make this stuff up. Rachel Gutman, who is a writer for The Atlantic, says even before the arrival of Omicron, the winter months were going to be tough for parts of the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. The seasonal wave of this new variant could end up a tsunami, though. Based on what? I don't know. Back in July, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky announced that COVID had become a pandemic of the unvaccinated. An unfortunate turn of phrase that was soon picked up by the president. Now the flaws in its logic are about to be exposed on what could be a terrifying scale. Unvaccinated Americans will certainly pay the steepest price in the months to come, but the risks appear to have grown for everyone. The pandemic of the vaccinated can no longer be denied. Well, tell it to Kroger, tell it to Delta, tell it to United, tell it to the U.S. Air Force. Why are you firing people for not taking vaccines when people who have been fully vaccinated are contracting COVID-19 and transmitting it to other people and ending up in the hospital and yes even dying of COVID-19? The shots don't work as advertised. How many times can you try to use the phrase breakthrough case? They're not even talking about breakthrough cases anymore. Have you if you noticed this, they were talking about it early on. If somebody who who actually had been vaccinated with one of these mRNA vaccines came down with COVID-19. Oh, it's a breakthrough case. You always have breakthrough cases. It's an awful lot of breakthrough cases that we're seeing now. There's some TV show, one of the housewife franchises that half the housewives have COVID and they're all vaccinated. It's bizarre. It's really bizarre. And they're saying that people are now beginning to not go with this idea of a third and fourth shot. Well, who can blame them? Who wants to get jabbed that many times? Especially when... It doesn't last. It's it's just amazing to me. So here you have the Atlantic talking about the pandemic of the vaccinated. Still no deaths from Omicron, according to the Federalist, and Americans are getting on with their lives. And this is funny. As it turns out, not one single COVID-19 related death in the United States from December 1st to 8th was caused by the Omicron variant. As of Friday, the CDC found that of the 43 people infected with the Omicron strain of COVID, most cases manifested only mild symptoms such as a cough, fatigue, and congestion or a runny nose. Well, by golly, run out and get your 16th booster because you might catch a cold. The CDC report also found that one individual who was vaccinated required a brief hospital stay. And then a majority of cases, 79% were in fully vaccinated individuals. Tell me again, Kroger, why you're going to do what you're doing to your employees. This is also interesting. This is via Zero Hedge. Long before the vast majority of Omicron cases were among the vaccinated and before the CDC director admitted in October that the vaccine does not prevent transmission, there were all kinds of people spouting insidious propaganda designed to shame people into taking the jab that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. This was actually a headline in the New York Times. They have a screenshot of it. In a late November note, the Lancet published a letter from Gunter Kampf, who is a prolific researcher at the University of Greifswald in Germany. And in it, Kampf absolutely excoriates those calling this a pandemic of the unvaccinated amid increasing evidence that vaccinated individuals continue to have a relevant role in transmission. This is what he says. In the USA and Germany... High-level officials have used the term pandemic of the unvaccinated, suggesting that people who have been vaccinated are not relevant in the epidemiology of COVID-19. Officials use of this phrase might have encouraged one scientist to claim that the unvaccinated threatened the vaccinated for COVID-19, but this view is far too simple. He says there is increasing evidence that vaccinated individuals continue to have a relevant role in transmission. For example, in Massachusetts, a total of 469 new COVID-19 cases were detected in July 2021. Seventy four percent of them were in people who were fully or partly vaccinated of whom were symptomatic. (laughs) Cycle threshold values were similarly low between people who were fully vaccinated and people who were unvaccinated, not fully vaccinated, or whose status was unknown. In the USA, a total of 10,262 COVID-19 cases were reported in vaccinated people by April 30th, of whom 2725, 2,725 were asymptomatic, 995 were hospitalized and 160 died. Let's let's ask David Frum about this because I would really enjoy listening to his reaction to the fact that it's not a pandemic of the unvaccinated. It just isn't. People who are vaccinated, he says, have a lower risk of severe disease but are still a relevant part of the pandemic. It is therefore wrong and dangerous to speak of a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Historically, both the USA and Germany have engendered negative experiences by stigmatizing parts of the population for their skin color or religion, I call on high-level officials and scientists to stop the inappropriate stigmatization of unvaccinated people. Attention, David Frum. I'm just telling you the way it is, folks. Just telling you the way that it is. And I'm going to get into more on tomorrow's show that apparently a a new survey has found that the biggest religion in America appears to be nothing, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. I would have to say that Maybe I'm going too far with this idea, but it would be hard for me to call all of the nuns unreligious. Perhaps you could call the pandemic a religion of sorts. It's just dogma. It's just blind faith in science with quotes around it, regardless of what they understand science to mean. Science is not something that's static. Science changes all the time based on new experiments and new discoveries, new data, et cetera. We know that. There's no such thing as a static science, and it's not something that's Ever perfect either. They act as if it's always perfect. But that's, you you talk about people who go after Christians for having blind faith. I don't have blind faith. You you as a Christian, do you think you have blind faith? Show me the body of Jesus Christ and I will renounce my faith immediately. Just as the Apostle Paul said, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. So produce the body. You've had 2,000 years to produce the body, folks, and you haven't produced the body. And you've come up with no good explanation for where the body is. So where is it? And you have no good explanation for why five 500 people saw Christ resurrected. 500 eyewitnesses. What do you do about that? What do you do about all of the archaeological evidence confirming the Bible? What do you do about all the fulfilled prophecy in the Bible? What do you do about Christianity? You reduce it to blind faith because you don't want to have to have a moral authority. You don't want to have to bow the knee before Lord Jesus Christ. But in fact, that's exactly what you'll be doing. You'll just be doing it either as a believer, as part of the redeemed, as part of the bride of Christ in the final analysis, or you'll be doing it in judgment. But you will bow the knee. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. That's where it's going, and that's not blind faith whatsoever. It is blind faith to just say, oh, Fauci's the best. (laughs) Fauci's the best. Yes, of course, now we know he lied to Congress about funding gain-of-function research and his claims about gain-of-function were not truthful, but yeah, you know, I'm not really worried about that. I just have blind faith in science, in science. And I also think if you are somebody who says you have no religion, often you do have a religion. You have a religion of hedonism, or you have a religion of paganism. I mean, the opposite of Christianity is paganism, is it not? You just invent whatever you want to believe. You could believe in fairies and gnomes and spirits, and you can take a little Buddhism and throw in a little Hinduism and a little LGBT ideology and some progressivism, Marxism, and come up with a nice little cauldron of lies who have been served up to you, which have been served up to you by the father of lies. It really is the nature of deception, as people have often commented, that you don't know you're deceived. If you believed you were deceived, you'd no longer be deceived, would you? You would look very hard and long at the people who were allegedly deceiving you to find out, in in fact, whether or not that person was deceiving you. Most people will never take the time to do that. Why? I'm busy. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I just want to live my life. I just want to do what I want. I don't want any moral authority in charge of me. I don't want to bow the knee to anybody. You will bow the knee to somebody. You got to serve somebody, Bob Dylan once said. He's not the best example in the world of a Christian. No no doubt about that. He renounced his faith. But hey, it's still true. It's still true. And Jesus is still Lord. Never forget that. We've got to leave it there. Thank you for being with us, as always, on Janet Meffer Today. We'll see you next time.